Well, I invite you to open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 1. I do want to remind you that we are taking communion today. If you didn't pick up a cup, you can do that um, in the narthex. Our focus will be on verses 3 to 11. However, I'll begin by reading uh, verse 2 for the context to verse 11. Hear now the word of the Lord. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does a man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north, around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow there, they flow again. All things are full of weariness, a man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It is already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of latter things yet to be among those who come after. Father, we ask now as we even consider these what seem to be depressing verses, we ask, Lord, you would speak to our hearts, fill them with joy in Christ's name. Amen. Well, last week we began this series on Ecclesiastes uh, by looking at the big picture and the overall picture. We discovered a life under the sun. Uh, that phrase is used 26 times in 26 verses here in Ecclesiastes. Life under the sun, that is life apart from God, it's empty. It's pointless. We learn that it's absurd. It is useless. It is meaningless. It is vanity. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity, says verse 2. Verse 2 there, all is vanity. That phrase in Hebrew is just two words. And the difference between those two words, all and vanity, is just a little line, if you've ever seen Hebrew, a little line in the bottom right corner of one of the letters. And after you add that little line, it changes the word all to the word vanity. All becomes vanity. Everything becomes nothing. One little pen stroke can change everything. And this is true of life. The tiniest of deeds can cause one's entire existence to collapse like a house of cards. Uh, one moment of selfishness, one moment of recklessness, in the blink of an eye, our everything becomes nothing. And so Solomon asks the question in verse 3, what does man gain by all the toil of which he toils under the sun? It's, it's meant to be a rhetorical question. The answer is nothing. It's all vanity. And so what he does to illustrate this truth He turns in verses 4 to 11 to the cycle of nature and then the history of man. 
And so that's what we're going to look at. There's three points. Verse 3, we're going to look at the question. And then verses 4 to 7, we're going to look at the cycle of nature. And then verses 8 to 11, we'll look at the history of man. And so first, the question. The question in verse 3 comes up again in verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 9. What gain has the worker from his toil? In fact, the idea of gaining uh, some profit will keep coming up repeatedly in the book of Ecclesiastes. It appears nearly a dozen times. And the word gain itself is used nine times in Ecclesiastes and nowhere else in the Old Testament. It's only found here. It's a commercial term. It's used in the context of business. It means profit. It means gain. It means advantage. It refers to a surplus, uh, to something left over. After all the expenses have been paid, whatever's left over, that's what the term means. It's a return on an investment of hard work. About, um, and so Solomon asked the question we all have about every job. What are we going to get out of this? Why are we doing it? Is it worth it? Are we accomplishing anything? What do we have to show for all our toil? We usually assume that if we work a little harder, we will get something extra. We'll get something out of it, more than we would have otherwise. So is our toil worth it? Is, is there gain? That's the question. And that word toil in Hebrew is the norm, normal word used for work and found in the Old Testament. But it actually has a negative connotation as it does here. Solomon's question reflects the reality of the fall. That's what's happening. The full force of God's curse on simple work. We read about it in Genesis chapter 3. Remember, God cursed the ground because they fell into sin. In pain, he says, or the word is toil. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you taken, for you are dust, and the dust you shall return. And it's that reality that Solomon's expressing. He's saying, look, we live in a fallen world, and, and if you live this, in this fallen world, life under the sun, that is apart from God, and we know that everything is just temporary, and the, the question comes, is there really any advantage to working against the curse? We're under this curse. God has placed us on it. Is there any advantage to your hard work? Is there gain from your toil? Will it make a difference? You know, last week I mentioned a couple songs. Some of you knew them. Let me mention another one. This one's by Donna Summers. And you may know the song. She sings about a waitress. A waitress, she clocks in at 9 a.m., waiting for the people to come in for a bite to eat. And, and this is what Summer says. She works hard for the money. She works hard. She works hard for the money. So you better treat her right. 28 years have come and gone in this song, it says. And she's seen a lot of tears. Of the ones who come in, they really seem to need her there. It's a sacrifice working day to day for little money, just tips for pay, but it's worth it all to hear them say that they care. That's all that work. Well, somebody cares. But here's the lie, here lies the dilemma of that. In reality, we often don't care, do we? 
I mean, let's be honest. Do you care about your waitress? Just bring me the food. Uh, you, know, I, I, you know, I try to be nice. I tip well. But do we really care? No. There's no appreciation even um, for the waitress in Summer Song. And so if, if that's the case, if there's no meaning, if, if there's no appreciation, then that 28 years of working under the sun, she's accomplished nothing. That's it. Nothing. And that's the answer Solomon gives. As I pointed out, that's a rhetorical question. The answer is no, you will not make a difference in life. Uh, as far as Solomon could tell, no matter how hard people work, they never really gained anything. There may be a thank you here and there, uh, but we usually go thankless. Uh, it doesn't really matter even if there is, though. There's no advantage. All is vanity. Thank you very much. Have a good day. That's how he leaves it. It's just vanity. And to prove his point that we have nothing to show for all our efforts, Solomon lists a series of things that never seem to go anywhere or gain anything. And he does it by way of a poem. This is kind of Solomon's song. The first half of the poem gives examples from creation, the natural world, that's verses 4 to 7. And the second half, verses 8 to 11, give examples from human experience. So let's look at the first half, the cycle of nature. Look at verse 4. He begins with earth. He says, a generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Generations come and go. One generation may be rising, but at the same time, another generation is dying off. Soon the younger generation will become the older generation. And then there will be a generation after that. It's always the same. It's an endless cycle. Meanwhile, the earth remains the same. There's never any progress Phil Riken, who I believe I may have recommended before, if I haven't, his commentary on Ecclesiastes is wonderful. I use it a lot throughout this series. He says, the rise of each generation gives the impression that something actually is happening, but nothing really is. A seemingly endless procession of people comes and goes, but the earth remains forever. It's an endless and apparently meaningless cycle. Nothing ever changes. Uh, St. Jerome said, what is more vain than this vanity? Listen to this. He says that the earth, the earth which was made for us humans, stays, but humans themselves, the lords of this earth, suddenly dissolve into dust. And so he asks the question, what profit is there? What do we gain? And Solomon gives us the answer, nothing. And then he continues to illustrate. But we move on from the cycle of birth and death on earth to the cycle of day and night on the sky. Look at verse 5. The sun rises, the sun goes down, and hastens to the place where it rises. And so Solomon pictures the sun rising in the east and panting. That's what that word hastens means. It panting with exhaustion, so to speak, across the sky in pursuit of to the western horizon. But the question is, what does it accomplish by all this uh, panting, by all this toilsome daily journey? To what purpose is all this motion and heat? Well, as far as the skies are concerned, one day is just like another, and the skies remain the same. 
One writer says, see, usually we turn to nature, turn to nature to find encouragement for the soul. One of the blessings for me in moving back up north and particularly here in Lancaster is where I was from in Florida, where I live in Florida, as in almost all of Florida, it's just flat and green. There's no changing of the seasons. Um, it's just, uh, you know, you have summer, then you have really hot summer, and then you have a light summer, right? And nothing changes. Here, we have the beauty of creation around us. And, you know, we have the, the beauty of the cold weather and snow in March. <laughs> but uh, the idea here is that we, we have this nature to encourage us. About, see, when the, when the preacher here, when Solomon sees the sun and looks at creation, he simply sees the monotony of life in a static universe. And he moves from uh, the sun, from the visible east-west movement of the sun to the invisible north-south movement of the wind. Now, he, he's not given a physics lesson here. You know, critics come along and say, well, that's not how this works. He, he's, just, he, he's writing poetically, but he's just covering the compass for poetic effect. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuit, the wind returns. Um, and, and the wind is in constant motion, uh, following circuits that man cannot understand. We can't chart it. It's all over. It, 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 what did Jesus say? The wind blows where it wishes. He told this to Nicodemus. And you cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. That's the reality of the wind. And so Solomon's point is this. Uh, the wind is constantly moving and changing directions. We hear it. We feel it. We see what it does. It seems so free, uh, and so it must break this monotony of this vicious cycle. But over the centuries, the wind has not changed its cycles or its circuits. Man comes and goes, but the changeless wind goes on forever. All is still vanity. But now we get to the oceans, and we get to the water, uh, it doesn't follow any motion. It doesn't go necessarily east and west or north and south. It seems to have broken this cycle, but it follows a course as well, long enough to find that it is also profitless. Look at verse 7. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. Now, when Solomon here is talking about the flowing uh, uh, water and flowing again, he is not describing the water cycle. All right, he's talking about how the way all rivers lead to the sea. And a good illustration for this would have been found in Israel. Uh, there you have the Dead Sea, uh, 1,300 plus feet below sea level. And, and it's the deepest sea on earth, and therefore without outlet. It's landlocked. It has no outlet. There's no other body of water. Yet for all the centuries, the Jordan River just flows into the Dead Sea, and yet the sea is not full. And so the water continues to flow. It's never filled. And so the idea is here, that's how life seems sometimes. Look at verse 8. All things are full of weariness. It carries the thought of exhausted. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. Like the Dead Sea, our senses are fed and fed and fed, but we never find fulfillment. 
You're not able to speak, he says. He cannot say enough about the wearisome repetition of the pointless cycle of nature. His eyes is not satisfied with seeing, can always take in more, but it's never enough. His hearing is filled. It can't be filled. He takes in more and more, but it's never enough. And so man is never satisfied. He is never filled. After all our looking, after all our listening, our eyes and our ears are never satisfied. And listen to what one writer said. He said, we still want to see and hear more. Soon we are back to take in more of the endless procession of sounds and images. You know, let me stop here a second just as I thought about it. We, we have that moment of silent prayer where we confess our sin. And if you notice this morning, the heater went off. And so there was a silence. And I have to tell you, most likely, that's the only silence you heard all week. There's always noise. There's always more images, more, more um, uh, sounds to take in that, that distract us. Um, uh, the writer here goes on to say, we can never get enough. There is always one more show to watch. There's always one more game to play, one more song to which to listen. And so, he says, we keep on text messaging. We keep on webcasting. We keep on Facebooking, Twittering, and Instagramming. But what have we gained? What have we accomplished? Is there any profit? And then the writer says, there are important questions to ask ourselves about everything we see and everything we hear. Is this helping making me some kind of progress in life? Or is it the same old, same old? Like the sea, it is never, ever full. That's our reality. And so like the endless cycle of nature with all its activity, it's still gain, which still gains nothing, so it is with us. All our activity of speaking and seeing and hearing gains us absolutely nothing. The journey goes on, but we never arrive. We want something new, something more, and all we get is the same old, same old thing. Depressed yet? Stick with me over the series. And this truth, that reality, leads to Solomon's words in verses 9 to 10. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It is already, it has been already in the ages before us. And what these verses are doing are kind of amplifying what he's already said in verses uh, 2 to 4. If God is left aside, remember what we're talking about here, life under the sun. If that's all there is, well, then there can be nothing new. History is just a closed circuit. Neither circumstances, what has been, nor human endeavors, what has been done, can change. And, and verse 10 anticipates this question. See, this is new. And that is this appearance of something new comes and and happens. See, this is new, but it's already been. For example, could Solomon ever imagine cell phones? Solomon could ever imagine computers or or iPads or any of the things in, in our century. They're new, aren't they not? And so what's he talking about? 
But I, I guarantee you, if we understand Solomon correctly, he wouldn't change anything he's saying. He would say the same thing. He's not talking about inventions. His point is to direct our attention to the fact that things like power and status and wealth and pleasure and even our possessions like shiny new tech are the same things that people have always pursued, always sought after and searched for to give meaning in life. It's always the same. The packaging is different. We're not riding chariots. We drive cars. I mentioned in the first service. Well, I guess in Lancaster, we still do horses. (laughs) But we have cars now. Instead of listening to a record player, we use our phones now are across the web. But the quest is nothing new. There's no new pursuit that can give meaning and purpose to our lives under the sun. You know, after the Dallas Cowboys won the Super Bowl in 1972, Tom Brookshire, a famous American broadcaster, asked Wayne Thomas, a star of the game, he goes, what does it feel like to win the ultimate game? Well, Thomas answered, he said, if it's the ultimate game, why is it being played again next year? That's Solomon's point. When it comes to human history, life is not just one thing after another. It is one thing over and over and over again. As the saying goes, the more things change, the more they stay the same. And if ever feels like and seems like there's really something new under the sun, it's only because we have forgotten what happened before. Look at verse 11. We may ask the question, is this new? Isn't that new? And Solomon says, there's no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of latter things yet to be among those who come after. Solomon's saying, look, we have historical amnesia. Um, uh, the Stoic philosopher uh, Marcus Aurelius wrote that, that they that come after us will see nothing new, and they who went before us saw nothing more than we have seen. And, and so the people who really think they've seen something new, if you're, if you're challenged to come out today and say, well, I can name a new thing, and when we get to the end, there'll be some new things we're looking at, but uh, something new, well, as the writer said, the preacher said, those whose vision can't penetrate beneath the surface of things think that there's something new. Because something is recent, it doesn't make it new. And he, he goes on to say, we mistake novelty for originality. That was Warren Wearsby. There is nothing new under the sun, only reruns from the past. Now, as true as that is, there is something more Solomon is communicating when he says there's no remembrance of former things or latter things. There's nothing new. Yes, that's true. But Solomon is not just saying man is oblivious to the past. Rather, what he's doing is undercutting our deepest aspirations to secure some permanent place in history. We're going we're gonna to make our mark. Uh, see, a life oriented toward ensuring its legacy for posterity only pursues the wind, says one writer. The future cannot be controlled any more than the past can be fully remembered. 
You know, people have had mountains named after them, but the next generation changes the name. People have had their names put on buildings or statues, and in 2020, they get torn down. Uh, Buildings are demolished with their names on them, and their names are remembered no more. You see, leaving a legacy is a vain pursuit under the sun. Why? Because all will be forgotten. I have a sweatshirt. People asked me if I was going through some type of depression, but I have a sweatshirt that says, Preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. <laughs> and you can fill in your job <laughs> and, and be forgotten. People gain nothing from all the toil in which they toil under the sun. You see, leaving a legacy is a vain pursuit under the sun. Why? Because all will be forgotten. And, and Solomon's saying, look, I'm just exhausted over it all. I'm exhausted by the vanity of it all. And he has made his case. The one who is greater than Solomon, that's how Matthew describes Jesus in Matthew 12. He says this, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world? If you were to gain the whole world under the sun, and what would it profit you if you were to do that and forfeit your soul? See, when people forfeit their souls, there's no profit, even if you gain the whole world. There's no profit. And to illustrate that, Jesus gives a parable in Luke 12. He says, the land of a rich man produced plentifully, plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. And, you know, this is the, what what you had described in that parable is the American dream. I'm going to get rich early and just live my life. And if I were to go up to somebody who's rich and was living their life and I would have said, You're a fool. They would not take it too well. But I'm not the one that said that. The next verse says, but God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And that is the point Solomon is making. Apart from God, people gain nothing from all their toil. Apart from God, such worldly pursuits just make a person a fool. We have a lot of fools in this world. We have a lot of them in churches. And and, and there's some foolishness in our own hearts for sure, but we have fools that are just striving to gain all that they can and they're losing their souls. And God says to them today, you fool. Come now, James says, come now you who say today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life Here you go. Here's some good news for you. For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. And and see, this is why Solomon is making his case so strongly. 
He wants you to understand that life under the sun is vanity. And we always think, well, it is for that person. But I, I can make it work. And then we see all the shiny new things. We, we see all the celebrities living their life and think, well, you know, if I just had that, I could make it work. But there is nothing new, he says. All will be forgotten, and you will leave this world profitless. But if you look beyond the sun, if you acknowledge that there is a God and that he has revealed himself in history through his word and through his son, Jesus Christ, and your labor is not in vain. That's what Solomon is pushing us to. Why? Because God has done a new thing. As Solomon looked around at life under the sun, he answered the question posed in verse 20. Is there anything of which it is said, see, this is new? He may have answered that question with no, absolutely not. There is nothing new. But in Christ... He was Solomon was answering with life under the sun. But in Christ, that is life above the sun, we know that the answer is truly yes. See, when we look at Jesus Christ, we can say, this is new. This is new. He has broken the cycle. He has conquered the grave. You see, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, 1 Corinthians. And so Paul goes on to say, in light of Christ's resurrection, that we too will be raised. And therefore, our works are not in vain. Our toil is not profitless. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. See, the eternal perspective changes everything. Think about it. In Christ, there's a new covenant. This cup is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. We're going to partake of the Lord's Supper in a moment. There is a new heart, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I'll put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, Ezekiel 36. There's a new creation. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. You have a new self, put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And someday there will be a new heaven and a new earth. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and this sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And so do you understand, beloved? Christ's resurrection and our our union to Christ in his death and resurrection turns everything Solomon has said on its head. 
It doesn't make it wrong. It just gives us a new perspective. Solomon's looking at the natural world and and fails to see any progress, rightly. But we now have a new perspective. We have new eyes to see through in Christ. The psalmist says, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. See, that perspective gives us a new perspective on the cycles of, of life. And to prove his point, the psalmist looks at the sun. For example, and he says, it comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs his course with joy. See, whether the sun seems to make any progress or not, as Solomon pointed out, it bears witness to the joy and strength of its creator. Therefore, from the rising of the sun into the going down of the same, the Lord's name is to be praised. And so nature is not uh, just a vicious cycle of monotony. It's actually a display of God's power and glory. Well, Solomon says the eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. But we know when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is, First John. And we also know that the joy will fill our hearts and will be completely satisfied when we hear these words from the lips of our Savior, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. Your toil was not in vain, though. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master, Matthew 25. You know, Solomon says, there's no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of latter things yet to be among those who come after. But here's the truth. Christ will never be forgotten. You know, secular philosophers have tried discrediting the word of God. They have failed. Nations have tried to persecute and kill Christians and and banning the use of his name but they have failed. Time and time again, the children of the devil have tried to remove any remembrance of Christ from the memory of men under the sun, but their toil was in vain. It is a striving after the wind because God has bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There's not a single individual on the face of the earth that will ultimately forget the name or the person of Jesus. He will be remembered by all. He will never be forgotten. And so Christ, Christ takes uh, the, the life, the way Solomon sees it and describes it and turns it on its head. All things can be new. Well, in closing, let me, let me just say that not only will Christ not be forgotten, that's wonderful news for us as believers, but see, here's the important thing for us. He will never forget you. He will never forget you. You will always be remembered by the one who died for your sins and rose for your justification. The world may forget you. That's true. Likely they will. There's only a few who've stood the test of time and and at least have been remembered. But Christ won't forget you. 
And can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, I will not forget you. See, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. That's Isaiah 49. This is what Hebrews says. God has said, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. And Jesus says this. Jesus is departing from this world. It's John 14, and, and he's departing from the world, and the disciples are a little worried. They've just given up their whole life for him, and he says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also, and you know the way to where I'm going. The Savior who never forgets you, who, who died for you, who rose for your justification, says, I will return, and I will not forget you. You will never be forgotten, beloved, by Jesus Christ. There's only one thing he forgets about you. It's your sin, because he covered it. For I forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. And so are you looking to make a profit? Are you looking for gain from all your hard work? Then, then Solomon is having you realize you cannot find it here. You must look beyond this world and what this world has to offer and look for it in Christ and in heaven for everlasting gain. And that'll only come when you trust Jesus Christ alone for your salvation and receive his free gift of eternal life. You have meaning. You do have purpose. Your work is not in vain if it is done in the name of Christ. Let's pray. Our great God and our heavenly Father, we thank you that though we toil on this earth and we have hearts uh, that turn away from you at times and, and desire the things of this world, we thank you that we will not be forgotten, that we have been loved with an everlasting love, that you have sent your son to die for us and rise for us. And we pray, Lord, that we would uh, cling to that truth as we go about our toil day in and day out. And we pray, Father, for those whose eyes have, uh, have turned away from the heavens and live life only under the sun, that you would lift up their heads, that they would see the truth, that they would hear the truth as it's proclaimed, and that they would believe. And so we commit that to you in Christ's name. Amen.